Welcome to the Yukon RUF podcast. RUF at Yukon is a ministry that relies completely on the financial support of churches and individuals like you in order to serve the Yukon community. You can support RUF at Yukon by going to ruf.org slash Yukon. Are going through... Okay, we can take my family off of there. Yeah. <laughs> We're going through a series on uh, the Gospel of John, and uh, we are uh, looking at this big question of who is the real Jesus. And the reason we're doing that is because there's a lot of people who say things about Jesus, like Jesus would never do this or Jesus would never do that. And so it's important that we go to the source uh, to know what, uh, who Jesus actually was. And there's really no better source. Uh, to go than the Gospel of John, because John uh, presents Jesus in some really unique and amazing ways uh, that really allow us to know him. So uh, I'm going to read this passage for us. It's, we're going to kind of jump around in the book of John, through the book of John this semester, week by week, but uh, this is the very beginning of John's Gospel. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can open it up, but it's up there on your screen, on the screen too. So let me read it for us. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That would be John the Baptist, different John than wrote the book. Uh, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let me pray for us again. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would guide us. And uh, uh, we come to it from all different places. Some of us are eager to hear from you and uh, others of us... uh, may not be so eager, and some of us have had a really long day, and some of us have had a really great day, and some of us are in between there somewhere. So we pray that no matter who we are and where we're coming from, that you would guide us and apply your word to our hearts and make us different. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, John, who wrote this book, was Jesus' best friend. Think about what your best friend knows about you. 
Jesus had a best friend. His name was John. He had other good friends, but uh, the disciples and, and the gospel of John, it says uh, that John was the one that Jesus loved. He was the closest with this John who wrote this book. And John is unique. You know, there's four accounts, the four gospels of accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And John is unique, uh, not only because he's Jesus' best friend, but because he tells you why he's writing. Uh, and it, he actually tells us at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, he says, I'm writing all these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That you may have life in his name. And what's the assumption behind that? It's possible to be alive and not truly be alive, Right? Like, isn't that what it's saying? You, like, he's talking to alive people and he's saying, you can have life. Uh, think about your own life and situation for a second. Uh, is there anything about what's going on with you now that feels less than lifelike? That feels less like flourishing and more like falling apart? Uh, several years ago, I went on an gr- amazing vacation with my family. Uh, it was just... Before we had kids, so my parents took me and my wife Maggie and my brother and his wife, and we went to St. Martin in the Caribbean. Anybody ever been to St. Martin or the Caribbean? Uh, Amazing place. And the problem with it was that the day of the trip, I started to feel sick, like bad. And uh, it started, it was like I'm getting tired, I'm feeling like a headache, and... I'm feverish, and this gland in my neck is, like, swelling out to where you can see it, like, visibly, and uh, I'm starting to get a sore throat, and if you've ever had these symptoms before, then you know that this is the beginnings of mono, and uh, so we arrived at this great house that my parents had rented for for the week in St. Martin, and I was just, like, feeling more and more miserable. The fever is starting to turn into chills. And I'm just like, I can't stay warm enough. And uh, it was miserable. And to top it off, I took NyQuil um, because I I was like, I feel miserable. I need to sleep. I need to rest. And I took NyQuil. And it knocked me out so hard that I slept like probably the whole night on this one shoulder in a weird way that it pinched a nerve. And I woke up the next day and my Whole, there's like pain radiating down like my whole back. So in addition to feeling like totally weak and sore throat and fever, like my back is killing me. And I spent this whole week in another country, like trying to push through. Like I was like, I'll go to the beach for like 20 minutes, and it was like awful. And and so I'm like trying to live this like amazing vacation, and I really just can't um, because uh, everything is messed up. Like, my body is messed up. Every, so the whole week uh, is tainted by this horrible sickness, this disease. And I wonder, does life ever feel like that to you? Like, you're supposed, it's supposed to be great, and it's actually miserable. You know, you're thinking, like, why isn't this great? This, this was supposed to be, like, the best week of my life, and it's actually, like, so bad. Uh, or maybe on, you could flip it around. Maybe things for you are pretty good. Like, things on paper for you are, like, great. Things are going great, yet when you have a moment to be alone or kind of to think about things, you know it's not enough. 
I read in the news this week that Ben Affleck, you know who Ben Affleck is? Everybody knows who Ben Affleck is. Uh, he's in rehab uh, now for the second time. And I was thinking about that the other day, and I was just like, man, who wouldn't want to be Ben Affleck, right? Like, he's attractive. He gets attractive people to fall in love with him. He's a movie star. He, makes, he has made tons of money. Uh, he's an all-around, like, you know, people like him. Um, and it's not enough. I mean, it's obviously nowhere close to enough, right? If you're ending up in rehab again and again. I, I don't know if you've been following. Uh, there's been this string of NBA basketball players that have come out and kind of said, like, I struggle with mental health. You know, I have depression. I have anxiety. And these are, like, some of the best players. And they're admitting, like, I am struggling deeply with this. Uh, there's one player who was mentioned. He's probably a top 20 NBA player, DeMar DeRozan, and he was interviewed about it, and he said, people say, what are you depressed about? You can buy anything you want. And he says, I wish everyone in the world was rich so they would realize that money isn't everything. Okay? So these guys are famous, amazing athletes, rich, and something's missing, right? Something is, like drastic is missing. And so whether your life is a real mess on the outside or a real, you know, and everyone who s- sees you knows it, or maybe your life seems great on the outside, but internally you know something is messed up. John is saying here that Jesus has something to offer you. Life. He says that life is found in Jesus alone, and he begins by calling Jesus the Word. And so that's what we're going to look at. Uh, what is the word about? Uh, how can life be found in the word? And we're going to look at, first of all, the centrality of the word, and then second, the rejection of the word, and then we're going to finish by looking at the transformative power of the word. So first of all, the centrality of the word, and we see it in the beginning. Uh, the first words, in the beginning. Uh, there's four gospel accounts, and if you were writing a biography of Jesus, of his life and ministry, where would you start? Uh, some, you might be like, I'm going to start with, like Luke does, with the birth narrative, and how he was born, his amazing birth. Or you could start like Mark does, kind of like when he started doing amazing things. And John kind of takes it up a notch, and he says, how about I start before time? <laughs> At the beginning <laughs> of everything. Uh, so that's where he chooses to start. I'm going to start, he says, before creation. And he does it to emphasize Jesus' centrality. And he says, in the beginning was the word, which is the exact same way the book of Genesis starts. It starts in the beginning. And so he's immediately, like, if you know your Bible and you're familiar with it, you're immediately going back to creation. Uh, and in that creation story, how does God create? He speaks things into existence. So uh, he's saying, Jesus is the word. He's putting Jesus at creation And it's interesting because we figure out who people are when they speak, right? Like if you were applying for a job and you submitted a resume, you would be like, I hope someone reads this and I get a job. But you'd be more confident if you got in there and met the people and they got to hear you speak and know who you were, right? Hopefully, if you're qualified for the job, right? Um, that's what Jesus is doing here. You know, if all of creation is God's resume, like you can learn a lot about God from looking around, but Jesus is the job interview. 
this is how you know God. And if you know, uh, if you've ever taken like a Bible class, uh, you might have heard that uh, the Greek word, this was written in Greek originally, and the Greek word is logos. So if you read this in Greek, you would say, in the beginning was the logos. And Greek philosophers debated all, the, all about the logos. And it's this idea of what, was, what is the underlying principle of everything? You know, what orders all of creation? And they called it the Logos, and they would debate what that is. You know, is it this? Is it that? And John comes along and he says, the Logos, the word, is a person. If you want to know what the fundamental principle of everything in the world is, it's a person, and his name is Jesus. Uh, We're talking about someone who has always existed. He created and ordered everything. Uh, Everything that you see bears his creative mark and was created through him. He was in the beginning. And it goes on to say, and the word was with God, and it's with in the sense of face-to-face. If you know the Bible, you know that no one sees God face-to-face. In the Old Testament, you can't see God face-to-face, but it's putting Jesus face-to-face with the Father. And it goes on to just, you know, if that wasn't enough, he says, and the word was God. These are enormous claims, right? If they're true, then there's nothing more central uh, to all of reality than the person of Jesus. Now, think about what, what does that mean for you and for me? Uh, what it means is that you'll never find life if Jesus is like your side interest. You know, like, you know, he's something, he's, there's a compartment of my life for Jesus, but I have other things going on, right? Uh, life will only make sense if he's central. Imagine for a second... So you could time travel. Love these, right? Um, Imagine that you could time travel back to ancient times with a photo of the universe, solar system, or of the solar system. So you could show an ancient person, like, here's the sun, here's, you know, the earth is not flat, but it's a planet, it's a sphere, and it orbits the sun, and there's all these other planets orbiting the sun. And imagine if you explained all this stuff to an ancient person, and they were like, well, that's an interesting idea. That might be useful. I'll try and keep that in mind. You would be like, no! Like, keep it in, try to keep it in mind. This is the most central thing there is, right? It will shape the way you think about everything. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and was a great Christian thinker, put it this way. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, I want to ask you, do you make room in your schedule for Jesus? Or does Jesus make your schedule? Uh, Is Jesus someone you go to for comfort when things get hard? Or is Jesus the one who's always with you in everything and the author of your story from start to finish? Uh, If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, again, I'm really glad you're here. You're always welcome. Please come back. Uh, What you need to hear John saying is that Jesus is either everything or nothing. He's not interesting. Because the claims that he makes are too big to just be like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, John here is saying that life is unintelligible if you miss that, the centrality of the word. But he goes on to talk about the rejection of the word In verses 10 and 11 there, he says the world was made through him, but the world did not know him when he came. Uh, His own people, in verse 11 it says, did not receive him. And I want you to think about why on earth would someone reject the word? 
Like, why when God became a man and he came, did most people reject him? The word is central, right? Why would any of us not receive him? And the answer must be that we have something else competing for central status. The only answer that could possibly make sense is that something else is central, and so we won't have him central in our lives. Um, You know, two things can't be central. Like, think about a solar system with two centers. It wouldn't work, right? The planets would collide with each other. And with that in mind, I want you to think about Adam and Eve. You know the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, where they're tempted by the serpent, who is Satan. And, uh, you know, the most tempting thing that Satan said to Adam and Eve when he offered them the fruit, it wasn't the fruit itself, but he told them, you will be like God if you eat this fruit. It's a way of saying, you can be central. In other words, God's given you all this great stuff and a perfect place to live and work and enjoy him, uh, but he's actually holding out on you because he's not letting you be at the center of it all. He's giving you these stipulations on how you're supposed to live. And what the Bible teaches is the moment that Adam and Eve believed that lie, the world became a sad place for them. And it became a scary place for them. And it's a sad and scary place for us because we have believed that lie over and over again. That lie that we should be central. I should be central. Think for a second about the scariness of being born into a world where everyone thinks they should be central. Picture a solar system with billions of centers. Think of the chaos. Think of the way that people would get hurt. Think of the sadness. Think about what a far cry from life that would be. And that's why college can often be a sad place. Because instead of like, you know, the idea behind college is it's this great community where you come together and you can learn with other people and you can, it's, it sounds pretty great, right? But what it often turns into is like, if you don't get this internship, your life is over. Or if you don't have your degree figured out, like, you're kind of screwed. Or, you know, if you haven't gotten into that social circle yet, or you haven't graduated with a job and a significant other, like, you have wasted your time, right? It's all a waste. And it doesn't stop after college, right? The pressure to perform never stops, as we learned from Ben Affleck and the NBA players, right? Uh, The pressure to have the perfect resume doesn't ever end. And life becomes kind of like a fish living out of water. Can a fish live out of water? Yeah, for like a little bit, right? And it's not having a good time. Okay, the hard truth that the Bible reveals is that we may hate that our world is this way, that everything is tainted by sadness and sorrow, and that our lives feel this way, but we're also part of the problem. We're the ones who have chosen a different path without Jesus as the center. And that's, where, that's what makes us impatient when things don't go our way. That's what creates anxiety within us when we don't know if we can hold ourselves up. That's what creates greed and every other kind of awful thing. And they all result in hurting people around us. I want you to re- reflect on that for a moment. How is your belief that you are central making your life worse? How is it hurting the people around you? So what we've covered so far is that life makes no sense without Jesus at the center. 
But also, life makes no sense if you don't see that your tendency is to hate him and to hate his claim to your, the center of life, of your world. And that's the tension we live in. Because on one hand, it's like, okay, sure, life isn't perfect, but the last thing I want to do is give up my spot at the center of it all. And so life kind of just continues on feeling not very lifelike, and we kind of scrape by. Does life ever feel like scraping by to you, I wonder? All right, so how does God address this tension? That's the problem. How does God, how do we make our way out of it? And that's where we come to the final piece, the transformative power of the word. Uh, We're finally getting to what this passage is all about. It says, the word became flesh. The way that God decides to fix our situation is to become a man himself and come to earth. And how does he go about doing that? Well, he drops down from heaven and he starts zapping everyone for messing up his world. Oh, wait, is that not how it happens? Oh, yeah. He's born to a Jewish teenager in a barn and placed in a trough for feeding donkeys. This is the most amazing thing in all of history. The God of the universe comes down and instead of destroying us, he becomes one of us. He becomes non-central. He comes to earth and he goes unnoticed for most of his life, which is a poor life, by the way. Uh, and that's why, like when it says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, like that, what that means is he came really close. Like, he moved into the neighborhood. He came close in every way. And it goes on to say, we have seen his glory. And if you know the Bible, you know what? Like, you can't see the glory of God and live. But John says, we have. What did the glory look like? What did, the, what did God's glory that Jesus showed look like? Uh, it looked like the one who created a beautiful world, living life among us in that same world that we broke. Think about what that experience would have been like. Uh, Think about Jesus' sensitivity to the broken. He created the world, and he knew exactly what it was meant to be like, and imagine what it would be like for him to navigate all the difficult and sad things in our world. Uh, Because he would be more sensitive to all the hurts of this world than anyone, because he knew what it was supposed to be like. I had a professor once who had extreme tinnitus of the ears. You know what that is? It's It's like he had superhuman hearing. So he wore like noise-canceling headphones when he walked across campus because loud noises would like really hurt his ears and brain. And in class, like on the first day of class, he would be like, "If anybody in here opens a soda can, like I will die. Like it's gonna feel like a knife going into my brain. So please don't like snap your binder open because that's gonna really hurt." Okay. That's what, that would have been Jesus' experience of everything messed up in our world. Every little thing that was messed up, that would have been Jesus' experience. Because, you know, we experience the sadness, but we don't really know any different, right? Like, it's just kind of what we're used to. But Jesus knew what it was like before it was broken. You know, we feel the sting of death and sickness, but Jesus felt it more. And we see it as he bursts into tears at the tomb of his friend in John chapter 11 that we're going to look at later this semester. You know, we feel when we get betrayed by our friends, it really hurts. 
Jesus was betrayed by his friends. That really hurt. So why did Jesus do it? Why did he enter into our sadness? Because he's the one person who knows how good it is to have face-to-face fellowship with God. And for him, there's only one thing better. If we could come. Having us there with him. As long as you live with the notion that God's like you, that he's kind of holding out on you, that he's kind of hesitant to shower you with his love, that he wants you to earn your way back to him, you'll never experience the life that John is talking about. And so Jesus' mission is to put the love on display through his own person so that we can see the face of God through him. And so what does Jesus show us? He shows us, first of all, God is way different than you thought. He is way better than you could have imagined. No matter how sad your life currently is, the one thing he's not doing is holding out on you. What this passage shows us is that Jesus is God and man, right? And people have debated, you know, why did, why did we have to have a Savior that was God and man? Like, there's all these discussions that you could find about why it was necessary to have God, be God and man. And uh, Jesus needed to be a man so he could be our substitute. So that he could live the life that we should have lived. And so that he could identify with every one of our hurts, every single one. And so he could die the death that we deserve to die so that he could allow us to see the face of God. And you know how you're seeing the face of God? If you see grace upon grace. Do you know what grace is? I think a lot of times we think of grace as like, God's grace, he gives us a free pass or something like that. And that's a really like weak definition of grace. Grace is God's love and kindness toward those who have shaken their fist and cursed God. Jesus, where does Jesus show us that kindness? On the cross, as people curse him, as he dies. If when you consider God, grace upon grace doesn't come to mind, you're not considering the real God. This is really good news when you've blown it big time, right? When your life is a wreck and it's your fault, you know, how was summer for you? You know, you had great plans to do all this good stuff this summer and it didn't pan out. Or whatever, you know, you were going to finally break that habit and you didn't. Um, What Jesus' incarnation shows us, what his emptying of himself shows us, is that number one, you're worse than you think. It's not just that you have a sin struggle or that you've sinned a few times or done a few wrong things and messed things up. It's that you think you should be God. And you can't stop. But the good news is that the love of God found in Christ is better than you could dare to dream. And it's for sinners. And when you come to know him, when you see him for who he really is and what he's really like, you become transformed into a child of God. What does the transformation look like? Uh, John the Baptist is mentioned in this passage a couple of times. And John the Baptist, the most famous thing, he was probably, he was one of the first people to realize and know who Jesus really was. 
And when he did, what he said was this. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. In other words, you start to become non-central. Life starts to be the way it's supposed to be again. Uh, You get less anxious because it's not all about you anymore. Uh, You get more selfless. You become a better friend. You take more risks. Uh, Life becomes exciting. You can just go on and on about what the life is like. Uh, And the only way you can be okay with being non-central is if you know the one who is central, who became someone people barely noticed, and someone people ultimately rejected so that he could have you, so that he could bring you in. Think about how much less anxious you would be if your life wasn't about you anymore. Think about how good a friendship would be between two non-central people. Think about what a community full of non-central people could be like. Think about how freeing that would be. Think about how welcoming that would be. Think about how much like home that would feel like. Think about how attractive that might be to someone who didn't know God because they thought God was me. That's what the gospel is all about, and that's what RUF is about. Uh, so uh, we're going to be looking at this all semester. We're going to be looking into this gospel, uh, this person of Christ that John reveals all semester, and it's our hope that we would come alive more and more as we do it. So I'm going to close by praying that uh, God would do just that among us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you know better than we do uh, how messed up things are, even though we feel that, uh, how messed up our hearts are, even though we feel that, and let, yet you love us and pursue us in love. And we pray that we would know something of that this year at UConn and in this community. We pray that you'd knit us together, that we'd be able to build each other up as we walk this road together. And uh, we pray that uh, we would find life in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.